All right, if you can make your way back to your seats. All right, well, once again, good morning. And as I mentioned before, it's, it's Palm Sunday. So thank you, Sid, for reading Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And before we begin, let me pray, and then we'll get started. You could turn to John's Gospel. So let me pray. Father, we just thank you so much for what a privilege and joy it is to worship you together as a body of believers, those who are called out and those who follow you and are sons and daughters. So Jesus, we just praise you this morning. I pray, Lord, that as I preach your word and, and I um, just bring the church through what, what your word says about you, that I stay in line with your truth. I pray for the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts if needing convicting, to give us joy if needing joy. To, to transform us, Lord, as we leave this church service later this morning, that we can go out and tell the world and tell our communities about you, that Jesus is our Lord, Jesus is our Savior, he is the Messiah. So Jesus, we just ask this and pray this all in your name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we'll be continuing through our series throughout John's Gospel. And I did the math, we're going to be here for quite a few weeks. Um, so less, less than a year, that's the plan. But we'll be in John's Gospel going line by line, verse by verse. We're going to skip over some areas that maybe we went through this past year. Uh, just, again, to keep it moving. And if we skip a section, I'll encourage you to go online and listen to it because it was preached within a year or so here from the pulpit. So John's Gospel will start in verse 29. And the past two weeks, we've been in the beginning of his Gospel. And a lot of preachers and theologians call that John's prologue. It's the introduction, and what he's talking about is one main point, that Jesus is the eternal God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. So John is making this claim. He's showing us what the incarnation of Christ looks like, that Jesus is fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, and he dwelt among us on earth for 33-ish years until he was crucified. And now John's going to transition in his gospel to a testimony of a man named John. So don't get confused because there's another John now that we're going to be talking about this morning. But before we read that, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, I'm looking around, I don't think many of us were teenagers, um, but maybe you had grandkids, maybe you had children who were teenagers around that time. There was this word that was used as an insult for Christians, and that word was Jesus Freak. Raise your hand if you've ever heard this term before. Oh, you're such a Jesus freak, right? It's always used with some sort of negative effect to it, and, and it's supposed to be an insult towards Christians. Like, you are looking, you live like a freak. Like, you don't live anything like the world. And as Christians, you're like, yeah, that's the point. That's why. Um, but the band DC Talk, I don't know if you've known them or not or heard of them. But they're a Christian band, and they released an album about this time called Jesus Freak. One of their main songs in that album, which turned into an anthem for youth ministry, was called Jesus Freak. And what it was, it was a mix of Christian rock, Christian rap, and, and maybe hip-hop in there as well. But what they did is they took this term Jesus Freak, and they twisted it, and they claimed it, and said, you're right, we are Jesus Freaks. They actually had a book that's called Live Like a Jesus Freak. It's funny, this was in the church library. I found it a few years ago, and I put it in my office. But what they're saying is if you claim to be a Christian, then you are a Jesus freak. Your life looks different than what the world says it should look like. And because of that, they're going to cast you out and you'll look like a freak. 
So what they did, which was really cool, is they used this negative word, and they claimed it and said, you're right, we are Jesus freaks. And in that song, Jesus Freak, they had a rap lyric or a rap verse in verse 2. I'm not going to rap it, I'll read it. And it's interesting because this is very, very, very 100% scripturally accurate as to who we're talking about this morning, which is going to be John the Baptist. The, the rap part goes like this. There was a man from the desert with naps in his head. The sand that he walked was also his bed. The words that he spoke made the people assume there wasn't too much left in the upper room. The skins on his back and hair on his face, they thought he was strange by the locust he ate. You see, the Pharisees tripped when they heard him speak until the king took the head of this Jesus freak. So this morning, as we were going to be looking at Palm Sunday, I couldn't think, and, and the Lord just worked it out, that we're going to be looking at John the Baptist's testimony of who Jesus is. And as I read that, I was really, I was really tempted to wrap it, and I'm like, I, I probably shouldn't. So we're going to be continuing through John's gospel. We'll pick up at verse, um, sorry, verse 19. We're going to see a shift from deep theological, deep um, issues of the prologue of who Jesus is to now, who does John the Baptist testify about who Jesus is? And as we're looking through that, we're going to ask three questions if you have your notes. Who is he? He being John the Baptist, who is he? What was his mission? And what did he proclaim? So let's read verse 19. I'll read till about 23. John chapter 1. This is the testimony of John. Now, hang on one second. This is John the Baptist, not John the Gospel writer. So this is the testimony of John the Baptizer. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So point one, we're going to be looking at who is John the Baptist? We see that in verse 19, people were skeptical. They were, well, who, who are you? There's confusion about who he was. A little bit of a summary and background. I'm not going to go through everything because it will take a long time. But here are some highlights about John the Baptist's birth. It's found in Luke chapter 1. If you want to go there later and, and, and just fact check me or, or read the whole story in context. His parents were named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Luke says that they were both righteous before the Lord. That's something to note. They were both righteous before God. Zechariah was a priest and Elizabeth, we learn that she was barren. She was unable to have children. They were both old in their age, very similar to Abraham and Sarah. Zechariah was chosen by Lot to enter into the temple and do a priestly duty of burning incense. You can kind of think of it as he, he won like the priest lottery. It was a great privilege to do that. He, 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 they cast out it was on him. He went in to burn the incense. Everybody else waited outside the temple for him to come back out. Then we see that an angel appears to Zechariah. The angel's name is Gabriel. And he tells Zechariah that his prayer has been answered. And he based, the angel says, you will have a son, you and, your, and Elizabeth will have a son, and you shall name him John. And Gabriel tells Zechariah that many will rejoice at John's birth, that John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, and he'll make ready a people 
or make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So not only were the Jews aware of John's amazing, miraculous birth, I mean, there was a gift from God to Elizabeth and Zechariah, but he also drew crowds of people that would go into the wilderness to listen to him preach in the desert. And a lot of people would look at him and say, this man is crazy and out of his mind. And some people said what he's claiming is true. There, there might be something to this. His activity, his preaching, it, it attracted a widespread of attention because for 400 years there was silence from the Lord using prophets to speak to Israel. If you know, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament and there's 400 years until really John the Baptist enters the scene preaching the good news, preaching, making straight the way of the Lord. So we see here that the Jews, and later we'll read that they're really sent from the Pharisees, the religious leaders, but these Jewish people, they go to John and they say, who are you? Who are you? And he, John clearly denies, first he clearly denies being the Christ. And a little bit of research in Greek language and, and things like that, commentator said that John uses the strongest words possible to deny without any sort of fact or gray area that he is not the Christ. He, he's saying, make no mistake, I am not the Savior. I am not the Messiah. I am not him. They, nec- they, they ask him, okay, if you're not the Messiah, are you Elijah? He clearly denies being Elijah. He says, I am not. Now, something interesting, the Jews were waiting for Elijah to return to them. They were waiting for him to return in bodily form. If we know about Elijah, he was swept up and carried up to heaven. He didn't die. Same with Enoch in Genesis. But he was carried up Elijah to the Lord. And in Malachi, it was prophesied that he will return with the coming of the Lord. So in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. Malachi 4, which is the last chapter in the last book of the Old Testament, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, not only did they think he was Elijah, because he's, again, he's fulfilling some prophecy here, but he also looked similar to Elijah's appearance. I did a little bit of research in 2 Kings. You'll read a little bit about what Elijah looks like, that he was hairy and he wore a leather belt. I believe it's in Matthew's Gospel, it says John the Baptist wore camel hairs on his back and wore a leather belt. And they were both proclaiming the Lord. So not only did he look like him, but they said, surely this is Elijah, the, the real Elijah in flesh and blood from the Old Testament. Are you him? John says, no. Now there are another sort of rabbit trails we can go down and we can talk on that point for quite a few minutes. So if you have questions about that, see me after because it could be a little confusing because Jesus says that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. And we could talk about that, but, but I don't want to go into that right now. So next he, he denies being the Christ. He denies being Elijah, right? Physically Elijah. And then he denies being the prophet. Not a prophet, but they say, are you the prophet? In Deuteronomy 18, They're asking, are you the one like Moses who we've been waiting for? Are you the prophet that's come to mediate between God and man, God and Israel? And he says, no. So no to Christ, no to Elijah, no to the prophet. And you can almost feel like the frustration. They're like, well, then who are you? We have to tell the people that sent us, who are you? Who do you say you are? 
And then we read in verse 23, this is John the Baptist. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John is saying that he's merely a laborer. He's merely there to prepare the road in advance for the king, to clear the road for the Messiah. Back then in this time, the roads were not straight and paved and nice and simple for kings to travel the towns. They were often winding. They go uphill, downhill. They might have holes in them. But when you knew the king was coming, you put every worker there to prepare that road for the king out of respect, out of reverence, out of fear, out of love, because the king is coming and make straight the way for the Lord. In a sense, John the Baptist is rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. He's rolling out the red carpet for the Messiah. He's saying, I'm not an important person. I am just merely a voice that's saying, be ready, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is near. Now he, pro- he, he quotes from, as the prophet Isaiah said, and this brings us to Isaiah 40, verse 3, which is a prophecy 600 years ago that John the Baptist is fulfilling. It says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So who is John the Baptist? In his own words, he says, I'm no one special. I'm no one to be praised. I'm no one to be worshipped. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm merely the one who's preparing the road for the king because the king is coming. And this leads to the next question. What was his mission? In verse 23, we, we read it, and I'll pick up there 23 to verse 28. John the Baptist says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So after he denies all of their questions, he denies who they think he might be, he admits that he himself is no one of great importance. He's merely the one who points to the Messiah coming. The Jews that were sent, they changed their question. I don't know if you, if you caught it. Instead, now they ask, then why are you baptizing? If you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, if you're no one great, Who gives you the right? Who gives you the authority? Why are you baptizing? And John's mission, as we read previously in in John's gospel, in the beginning of chapter 1, he says this in verses 6 to 8, if you want to look back to verses 6 and 8 of John's gospel, chapter 1. He came as a witness, this is talking about John the Baptist, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And that light is Jesus, the Messiah. So something important about John the Baptist and his baptisms. He's baptizing Jews. Now this might not sound like a big deal, right, if you, if you hear me say that, but to the Pharisees and to the Jews that heard this and the religious leaders, this was a huge, huge deal. Because Jews didn't believe they needed to be baptized. They believed they were automatically connected to the kingdom of God because of Abraham, right? their father Abraham, their descendants, their offspring of Abraham. And remember, when we went through the I Am statements, Jesus encountered and Jesus battled this statement with them. So they believed, we don't need baptism, we don't need repentance, we don't need any sort of ritual or purification, because we're already connected to God. 
and we're great just the way we are. And John the Baptist is baptizing Jews. During that time, the Jews allowed Gentiles to come and be converted to Judaism, but the Gentiles had to be baptized, and because they deemed them so unclean, they said to the Gentiles, you have to baptize yourselves, and then after that, it's a rite of purification, then you have to be circumcised if you're a male, and then you have to follow all of our rituals and all of our laws to convert to Judaism. But what we're seeing is John the Baptist is baptizing Jews, not Gentile converts. And that angered the Pharisees, angered the spiritual leaders. They believed that those who were baptized were acknowledging that their sin had placed them outside of God's saving covenant and that they were no better than the Gentiles. The Pharisees looked at these Jews being baptized and, and they had to have thought, what are you guys doing? You guys are traitors. You guys are her- heretics. You're getting baptized. You're, you're already inside the covenant. Now you're outside and you're acting like these Gentiles who are unclean. So it was a big deal. We see the prideful hearts of these religious leaders already clashing with the coming of the Messiah even before it's Jesus to be revealed as the Messiah. And John's baptisms were a public expression of repentance. You go through all the other Gospels, it says his baptisms, his water baptisms, were acts and signs of of public repentance in preparation for the Messiah's coming. And this is how he made straight the way of the Lord, by baptizing with water, preparing people's hearts to receive the coming of the King, to receive the Messiah. And if we keep reading, it's important to point out that John never forgot his mission, and he knew his place. John the Baptist knew his place compared to the Messiah. In verses 26 to 27, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. It's a very sad statement. Among you stands one you do not know. Even when he comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So again, he's revealing a sad reality of the blindness of the Pharisees, the blindness of the Jewish leaders' hearts, that you do not know the Messiah. And this is a common theme throughout Jesus' public ministry. He didn't clash and battle with sinners He clashed and battled with what? The religious elite, the Pharisees, the teachers, the leaders. Because of their blind, arrogant, and pride-filled hearts, he constantly clashed with them. In verse 27, he says, The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. In Jesus' day, some people had servants. They had slaves, indentured servants. Now again, let me pause for a second. This is different than the slavery that was in America. That slavery was racist, and it viewed people as not image bearers of God. It viewed them less than human. But in Jesus' day, in Bible times, they had slavery, but it was indentured servanthood, which meant if they had a debt to pay off, they would willingly become a slave to to a master to pay off their debt. Or if they needed someone to take care of them, they would become a willing slave to a master. And we know throughout John's, uh, not John's, Paul's letters, that the master-slave relationship should be love. It should be love. So not only that, but people had slaves. They had servants back in, in, in Jesus' day. And feet were considered dirty, unclean, humiliating to touch. And if you had come home after a long day or had a guest or had a dinner party, what your slave would do, your slave would stoop down, would untie your sandals right, or, or take your sandals off, wash your feet before the meal. Many rabbis... Right? These are teachers of the law. They had students, they had learners that would act like their servants. They would act like a slave to them. 
But in, it was Jewish law that the masters, the rabbis, were forbidden to even ask their disciples to touch their feet and to do this. It was a slave's task. It was reserved for what? The lowest of the low, the slave to do. And we see John's humility. He says, that slave task, I'm not even worthy enough to do that. I'm not even worthy enough to touch the feet, to touch the sandals, to take them off of the one who's coming, the Messiah. And John always remained humble. He always knew where he stood compared to Jesus. We know from reading that John, he could have been tempted. He, he was famous. There was some widespread fame about him. He was getting popular. He had disciples that he baptized. He could have been tempted to look at everything he had and said, you know what? I'm a pretty good person. I, I think um, you know, the Messiah is up here, and maybe I'm like a close second right here. You know, look, I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm pretty worthy. And you know, the Messiah is still above me, but I'm just slightly under him. Right? John built up a following. He built up disciples. He, he baptized. It could have been easy for John to look at the little kingdom that he had and said, this is mine. Right? The, the, thank you, this, this is mine. These people love me. But he didn't do that. He didn't act that way. Later in John's Gospel, in chapter 3, and you might know this verse. You might have, uh, it might be a life verse for you, but John the Baptist said it. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. And here's the context really, really quickly. His disciples, John the Baptist, they see Jesus baptizing people. And they're basically like, John, what is Jesus doing? And John humbly says, in order for Jesus to be exalted, in order for Jesus to increase, I have to decrease. He knew it's not about me. He knew he's the one that's pointing to the Messiah. He's the one, and I thought of like medieval times or, or like, or, or in, again, that time period of when the king would enter, they'd blow the trumpet, and you'd hear ye, hear ye. The king is, you know, they'd have someone as a forerunner coming in to announce the king's presence. That person was not important. They pointed to the, the importance of the person they were proclaiming. For John the Baptist, it was all about the Messiah who is revealed to him to be Jesus. And it got me thinking, as I'm reading this, I'm saying, what can we learn from John's humility? Are there little kingdoms in our lives that we hold on to? I think a lot of us, we look around at the blessings that God has given us, and I think sometimes we're too quick to say, this is mine, right? This, this belongs to me. This is my youth ministry, or this is my music ministry. No one's allowed to sing besides me, right? Once you start saying that, that's the end. That, that, that is, it's, it, you've gone so far as to think of you're worthy of something, that something belongs to you, but it belongs to God. Once we start saying, this is my church, this is mine, we've lost our vision that it belongs to God. Right? He's the one that's worthy of praise. He's the one that we follow. Is there anything in our lives, whether it's at our job or at our home or any sin, that we say, this is my kingdom, I'm not giving this up. If there is, we need to surrender that fully to the Lord. We look at John the Baptist. He had all of these things. He had followers. People loved him. Some people thought he was crazy. But he had a following. And he willingly said, I must decrease so that Jesus can increase. I was watching a video of an, evangel an evangelist this week. I forgot who it was. But they said, I don't care if I preach the gospel to somebody and lead them to Christ and spend all this time talking to them that if they forget my name. He said, I'd rather them remember Jesus' name at the end of my conversation than my name. And I said, man, that's, a, that's, again, I was like, that's pretty, I never thought of it that way. It's pretty profound. 
right? just the humility of it's not about me. It's about Christ. It's about Jesus. And that was John the Baptist's mission. Again, John knew his mission. He's proclaiming, prepare, prepare your hearts. The Messiah is here. He says, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And in the next set of verses, we'll see what John proclaims about the Messiah and his coming. So number three in your notes, what did John the Baptist proclaim? In verse 29, <clears throat> the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Let me stop right there really quickly. John, in, in verse, I believe it was verse 15, we talked about this. He talks about John the Baptist saying, a man who comes after me, but really ranks and comes before me. He's talking about the eternal Jesus. That, yeah, John the Baptist came first, but ultimately the Messiah came first because the Messiah is eternal God. And that's what John, the gospel writer, is making sure that his readers know in his prologue, the first couple of verses. So keep reading. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have bore witness that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist, if you have your notes, he proclaims two things. One, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He also says that the Messiah, that Jesus, will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus' coming is not economic, it's not militaristic, it's not political. It's a spiritual deliverance and bringing forth of a kingdom that's deeply spiritual. He's here to deal with sin. So John's clear message was what? The Messiah has come to deal with our sin. John uses this phrase, the Lamb of God, or the Lamb sent from God. He might have been thinking back to Genesis chapter 22, where, where God gives a lamb to Abraham as a sacrificial substitute for Isaac. He could have been thinking of Exodus chapter 12 with the Passover, where the Israelites are in slavery by the Egyptians, and the Lord commands them to, to, to shed the, or smear the blood on the doorframe, and, and what they do is they get delivered or spared from God's wrath that's on the Egyptians. He's fulfilling prophecy, and in Isaiah 53, 7, this is about Jesus. Isaiah says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before cheer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's also a foreshadow of Jesus' death on the cross. In the Old Testament, it's a reminder that blood sacrifices were the only way to have atonement and forgiveness that you couldn't have that without a substitute dying as your sacrifice in your place. Or, and this is the last example, I read somewhere that possibly Passover was coming up quickly. Passover it was going to get celebrated soon. And John the Baptist might have been seeing all these lambs being led to the temple, led to slaughter. And like that, he said, this is the Messiah who's being led to slaughter. He's come to save us from our sins. Behold the Lamb of God. And it's important to note that 
God sent Israel a lamb. They were expecting a prophet, a conqueror, a king, someone who would be a warrior that will deliver them from their enemies physically. Right? And we see this as the case as the Jews praised Jesus in his triumphant entry, as they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Right? They worship Jesus as the Messiah that they created him to be. The Jews worshiped Jesus in that triumphant entry as the Messiah that they wanted him to be. They wanted him to be a conquering king who will deliver them from their Roman captivity. But that's not the Messiah that John the Baptist proclaimed, that Jesus revealed to be, and that God promises in the Old Testament. And I just need to say this, we have to pause for a second. It's important for us to not fall into this category. There are a lot of people, and, and this is what I mean, there are a lot of people that create their own version of Jesus that they want to worship. Because that Jesus is nice, and he seems all loving and, and cuddly, and he's so great. And, and what they do is they read things that Jesus says, and they, they have a problem with it. And they say, ah, I don't know about that. I, I rather would worship a Jesus that's like this. And they, they make Jesus in their own image. They put him into their own boxes of predetermined rules of how Jesus can fit in their lives, not what they have to surrender to follow Jesus. So as Christians, and even as we evangelize with people, it's important to ask, well, who do you say Jesus is? Who, who do you say he is? Right? And as, as we think, do we worship the Jesus that's revealed in God's word? The word whose eternal God who came and, and dwelt among us became flesh who died on the cross for our sins. And John also says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I thought it was interesting. It's not plural. He doesn't say the sins of the world. It says the sin of the world. I think what he's getting at is sin is a worldwide problem. All people of all age groups, of all races, of all ethnicities, of nationalities, male and female, Everybody in the world has a sin problem. It's an everyone problem and that Jesus, the Word, the Messiah, came to deal with this problem. He came to reconcile sinners to God. He came, as the angel tells Mary, to save his people from their sins. So not only did John proclaim that Jesus, right, He's preparing the way for the Messiah. Then he sees the Spirit descend and remained on Jesus, and that's the sign that God gave him, that that would be the Messiah. And he sees Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he also clearly taught John the Baptist that it was a spiritual deliverance, a spiritual purification that the Messiah would bring forth. If you keep reading, he says in verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So John's water baptisms were what? To, to prepare people to have them repent for their sins, repent of their sins, prepare their heart for Jesus' coming. I heard one pastor say this quote, and I really liked it, so I'm stealing it from him. John the Baptist is basically saying, I'm washing the utensils, but the meal is coming. I'm washing the utensils, the meal is coming. Right? And that's what John's mission was. He was washing, preparing for the Messiah, for the meal that is coming. And something interesting, when you study John the Baptist and, and you realize he's related to Jesus, John the Baptist's mo mother, Elizabeth, was cousins with uh, Jesus' mother, Mary. <clears throat> they were relatives, but he did not know that Jesus was the Messiah until this point. 
until the Spirit of the Lord descended on him. And that was the sign that God said, the Spirit of the Lord will remain and descend on the Messiah. He was made fully aware that Jesus is the Messiah. I thought it was interesting how quick he was to put his faith and believe that. Right? Someone he knew. Probably someone he saw at, at maybe festivals or, or whatever. Like, you know, this is, I'm related to him. But he sees Jesus as the Messiah. He doesn't question God on it. I thought that was interesting. So again, John came and baptized with water. But he says Jesus, the Messiah, will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's bringing a spiritual deliverance from sin, and only by the Lamb of God are we reconciled to God. And this phrase that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit, there's been a lot of people and, and preachers and churches and theologies that have taken it really out of context, far out of context. But what I believe is clear from God's word is that as John's proclaiming this, what he's saying is the Holy Spirit comes through Jesus. That Jesus brings and gives us the promise and the gift of the Holy Spirit. John Piper says the Holy Spirit will not do his redemptive work apart from Jesus. Jesus will be the means by which anyone receives the Holy Spirit. When you think of baptism, you think of immersion, you think of covering. In the same sense, Jesus is immersing people or will immerse people in the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out and given to us in such an extent that, that our hearts belong, that he's, he dwells within our hearts. We're enveloped, engulfed by the Spirit. When we come to Christ, we're baptized with the Spirit. I don't believe it's a second outpouring or a second blessing we get after we're saved. Some people preach that and teach that. I find that's against God's Word. I believe that the moment of justification, the Holy Spirit regenerates our dead heart and makes it alive. And at that point, we've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. I think that's what John is talking about. And in verse 34, as we move on to the last verse, John ends and says, I have seen and I bore witness that this is the Son of God. So he concludes his testimony for yet another title for Jesus. He says, the Lamb of God. He calls him the King. He calls him what? The Son of God. And we'll continue to see this title throughout John's Gospel. And it's important for us to say that Jesus alone has the right and the authority to be called the Son of God. Because He alone shares the same nature as the Father. If we are in Christ, we're called sons and daughters of God. But Jesus alone is the Son of God because He is God. And John, in the beginning of his chapter, verse, uh, sorry, the beginning of chapter 1, makes that clear that Jesus is God. And as I conclude really with, with John's testimony and his mission, his calling, it was all to point Israel to the Messiah, to point them to Jesus. And in the same way, if we proclaim to be Christians, that's our mission as well. We should be going out, making disciples, pointing others to Jesus. John knew of Israel's sin problem and their need for repentance. He took the attention off of himself and he always put it on Jesus because he knew that Jesus alone, the Messiah alone, could save. John saw Jesus as the triumphant king who would deliver the world from their sin. Do we believe that? Do we truly believe that? That Jesus is the triumphant king who came to deliver us and the world from our sin. If we do, then we believe that he's the Lamb of God then we have to boldly proclaim it to others. It, it matters. As we continue 
to seek revitalization, to, to go through this season of, of looking in John's gospel, talking about evangelism, talking about discipling, I think it's important that we never grow numb, we never forget what Jesus actually did for us. The moment that the cross just becomes a story, right, that we forget everything and we're just like, oh, that's so nice, and it becomes almost like a fairy tale, we, we've grown numb. We've grown numb to the fact of what Jesus actually did. He bled and died on the cross. He literally faced death, suffering, torment, beat, all for us, all because of his love and forgiveness. He died for us, made a way for us to be reconciled and be redeemed. If we're in Christ, God looks down and sees us as his children. Because of why? Jesus' blood. Not because of our own works, not because we're something special and we're so good. It's about what Jesus did. As we sang and proclaimed, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb. And I just want to say this. If your heart has grown numb or stale, or maybe you're bored in your faith, or maybe you look at the cross and, and you don't really understand, or, or maybe you don't fully thank Jesus for what he's done, I want you to remember the time when you first got saved. A few years ago, I was talking to a youth group student, and he just got saved. His whole nature, his whole conversation, everything about him, all he kept talking about was Jesus. And he was excited about it. And in my head, I'm like, come on, can you just talk about anything else besides Jesus for one second? Like, I'm, I'm like half joking, but I didn't say it out loud, but shame on me for thinking that. Here's someone who's on fire for God. We use that example, that illustration. He's on fire for God. He can't stop, but he can't help but to, but to talk about Jesus and everything in his conversation. He'll season it in, like, how was work? Oh, it was good. Uh, oh, and Jesus. I'm like, well, how, how'd you get to Jesus when I asked you how work was? Right? I want us to remember, and I truly think this, if our church is going to go through revitalization, I think it begins with our hearts. Through the power of prayer, through the power of the Holy Spirit, remembering what God has done for us, remembering that joy, remembering the cross, remembering how much we're loved, how unworthy of Jesus' love that we are, and in spite of that, he still loved and came and died for us. And I truly believe that once that happens, That'll bubble up and out into what? Serving each other, worshiping. And I think it'll truly change our church. We'll go out and we'll want to tell people about Jesus. Not to grow our church, but we'll want to go out to tell people about Jesus because their soul matters. We don't want them to spend an eternity in hell. So I think as we seek revitalization, we have to, again, not grow numb to what Jesus has done for us. Preachers have always said, preach yourself the gospel daily doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 75 years. You still have to preach yourself the gospel. Remember the gospel daily. You die to self daily. You pick up your cross daily and you follow him in a total surrender. And I pray that if there are little kingdoms in our lives, in our church's life, and anything that God's convicting you of that you need to let go of, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit you can surrender that to God and follow him and worship him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. What a privilege it is that we have your word. What a privilege it is to worship you. We thank you so much for coming from heaven to earth and dying for us on the cross. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But you came in love because of who you are, not who we are.
So Jesus, I pray if there's anybody here today that, that's grown stale in their faith or, 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 or bored or numb, I pray, Lord, that they can cry out to you and by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within them, they can confess their sins to you. I pray, Lord, that we can let go of any little kingdoms in our lives that are taking us away from you, that are taking praise away from you. I pray that we remember that we are a church that belongs to you, first and foremost. New Village Church is your church. I pray that as we looked at John's proclamation, his mission, that we can go out and tell the world the same thing. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that Jesus, you are the eternal God, you are our Messiah, our Savior, the only one worthy of our praise, that you died and you rose again. And as we celebrate that next Sunday, I pray that we live that out, that we, we live with the joy of that, that we leave here this morning transformed by your love, reminded of how much your love cost. It cost you everything, your life on that cross. And as we follow you, we should be surrendering all of us to you. Jesus, you alone are worthy of our praise. We love you, and in your name we pray. Amen.